Prabhupada Ki Jai. Today we're going to continue speaking about how Maya affects us. And I wanted to begin by talking about something I was just thinking about, the importance of being steady. And uh, we'll begin with Kirtan, but I want to want to start, I want to begin speaking about why it's important to be steady in devotional service. We had read, maybe three weeks ago, a letter by Prabhupada where he spoke about gaps in our bhakti, and we had spoken about that. And one aspect of that was just um, being distracted, but also another aspect is um, being up and down both in our sadhana and service. And I, I want to talk about that, what might cause that problem. But first, we will do kirtan. Hare Krishna. Kirtan, kirtan, kirtan. More kirtan. We need more kirtan. Hare Krishna. More kirtan, more kirtan. We always need more kirtan, right? Never enough kirtan. Krishna Chaitanya. Jamuna Tira Panachari 
worth of prasadam, and now you're recovering. <laughs> so, on my screen, my video keeps starting and stopping. Is that the way you see it? And um, is there any problems? I mean, we have problems, but I mean, any problems? Any problems? in the audio or video. I will make the assumption that everything is fine. I want to begin this class with a story about the importance of being steady and how steadiness is a symptom of bhakti. Some of you may remember the story, I've told it before. But I find that, um, you know, we need to say things over again because we forget. And also, uh, yes, you are freezing. And it's not even freezing, yeah. It's, um, I'm not sure what the freezing is caused by. It could be the, uh, the internet is up and down. As long as you can hear me, and that's most important. So, there was a man, he was the owner of a newspaper in the country of Mauritius. And a lot of the people in Mauritius who are Hindus, they know something and about the Vedas and Hinduism, and this man knew something, but as is common, 
what they know is not the right thing always. So in the Battle of Kurukshetra, he pointed out to Prabhupada that Arjuna's son was killed and Arjuna was lamenting the loss of his son. And in the Gita, says uh, Krishna says, the wise people, they don't lament for the living or the dead. It's a, a sign of transcendence. You don't become elated when things are great and you don't lament when things are bad. You're steady. It's like Krishna told Arjuna, a one who's steady in happiness and distress, then they're they're in the right position for spiritual life. They're qualified. And it, so it's both a practice and also a symptom. So um yeah. My the freezing of the video may stop, it may not. I have to try to figure out. Maybe somebody can help me. On the screen, it has different amounts of kilobytes that are being uploaded, and it keeps changing. Can't figure out why. Anyway, so this man said to Srila Prabhupada, Arjuna could not have been a pure devotee because when his son died, he was lamenting, and a pure devotee would not lament for the living or the dead. It sounds, in a sense, like a reasonable argument. But of course, we know Arjuna is a pure devotee. But at the same time, what he said could be seen as true in the sense that Arjuna now has been put into maya or illusion in order that Krishna can speak Bhagavad Gita. But in, essentially, Arjuna is, n is not an illusion. It's not his normal condition. So that would make sense. Okay, he's lamenting. But Prabhupada... He took it in a different way. He didn't. He didn't say, "Oh, well, that was, um, you know, Arjun was." Uh, well, actually, at that point, um, he had already heard Bhagavad Gita. So that what I said, take back what I said. So now Arjun is supposed to be in his state as a pure devotee. So yeah, that makes sense. So Prabhupada said two things. The first thing Prabhupada said was that if you lose your son. It's normal to lament. So he was indicating that even, even someone who's spiritually advanced, when some kind of tragedy tragedy like that happens, they will be affected. It's natural. I mean, it's it's not that we have no emotion. That you know, just like we see if a, a dear devotee dies, everyone's affected. We lost someone dear to us. That important that person was important to us, etc. So we're not like stones. So he was. Prabhupada wasn't really, he wasn't giving so much validity to that, neither laments for the living or the dead, as, as a symptom of a pure devotee. And he was, he was, then he went on, he made a second point. That, so the first point, that lamentation is it's natural. But he made the second point, which is what I want to talk about. He said that Arjuna didn't stop fighting. He didn't give up his duty. So in spite of the fact that his son died, he was steady in his duty. He wasn't affected by it. Maybe affected, you could say, Prabhupada is saying, well, naturally, emotionally, we'd be affected, but that didn't stop him from being steady in his duty. 
The fact that he was steady in his duty was proof that he was Krishna's pure devotee. So I think that's significant, and I, I wanted to mention that. And the reason I wanted to talk about this, at least briefly, as a, maybe a common or potential form of uh, how maya affects us, is that it's quite common in my work as a counselor and also just as a teacher to run into situations where devotees become unsteady. Um, they might um, just have periods of, of um, very little Krishna consciousness. And sometimes in those periods, They, they have some service and they don't do it. They just, it's like everything, throw, they throw out the baby in the bathwater, everything just goes out there. Something happened in their life that has really disturbed them. And it's kind of like they just give up on the whole project of Krishna consciousness. And so, Prabhupada, just like Krishna, stressed steadiness. And he really didn't like like it when devotees were not steady, and he was depending upon us to be steady in our service. And so, I don't think we should I don't think we should look at steadiness as a as something lightly, but I think we should see it, of course, as a practice, but also as a symptom that, in spite of the ups and downs, we don't give up our service. We continue uh, sometimes. Service is difficult. We we will find someone that will replace us. Maybe do a service that's better situated. That's that's reasonable. But we don't give up that service until we're replaced. Or when things are difficult. Uh, sometimes I've seen devotees. I've I've never done this myself, or at least not, not that I can remember in any serious way. But sometimes when things are difficult. A devotee, rather than taking shelter in sadhana and revving up their sadhana with better japa or more reading or more sangha, they take shelter of sense gratification. So they rev up the sense gratification. Oh, I'm so miserable, I can't deal with this. This, you know, devotee treated me this way, or um, Maya is attacking me this way, or my, my mind is telling me this, my faith is weak, you know. All, all, there's so many reasons that someone may become unsteady. And then, rather than fight it, they they take shelter in sense gratification, um, or take shelter in forgetting Krishna. Oh, devotional service is difficult. Uh, sometimes devotees say, um, you know, before I was a devotee, everything was fine. <laughs> it wasn't fine. You were, you were you were preparing to take a body, maybe as a human, maybe as an animal. And you were trying to be happy doing a million things. But sometimes that thought comes because, you know, when you're trying to become a devotee, then you're, um, you're facing material energy. You're trying to get out. If you're not a devotee, you're not trying to get out. So it may seem somewhat easier, an easier life. You know, you just get up, drink your coffee, go to work. No expectation of being spiritually advanced. Do your work, come home, throw the, the TV on or social media, make your dinner, eat it, watch some 
Entertainment, go to sleep. Yeah, well, peaceful life, no problem. And become a devotee. Like, oh, my mind, I have so many desires and so many narthas. And, you know, and before you're a devotee, you weren't either aware or maybe aware, not concerned. Your goals weren't. You didn't have goals for this level of purity. So naturally, when you're trying to become more pure and you're taking on responsibilities, which can be difficult, yeah, it can be harder. And so I've seen some devotees, aside uh, that one, one ill-fated strategy is just, you know, more sense gratification. This Krishna consciousness is too difficult. I need more sense gratification. Which, in some sense, may be true a little bit, that maybe you are being too austere with yourself and you can't maintain it. So that could be true. But I'm, I'm talking about just immersing oneself in sense gratification as a solution, or worse still, as I mentioned, trying to forget Krishna consciousness. It's caused all my problems. Let me just forget it. And then um, they don't want to talk to devotees. They don't want to associate, because then it would remind them of Krishna. <laughs> it sounds strange, right? But Maya will place that seed in the head of us, of some of us, sometimes, that Krishna consciousness is actually the cause of your problems. And if you just forget Krishna, you'll be fine. And if you just stop doing devotional service, you'll be fine. Now, I don't think that's common for everyone, but I'm only mentioning it because I've seen it more than once. And I think the obvious answer or solution is that if we have a problem, it's a problem either in execution of devotional service or an understanding of devotional service. Now, I want to talk about something that I think will clarify this a little bit, because sometimes it is true that a devotee is too austere, too renounced, renounced beyond their ability to be steady. And so that's one reason we're not steady, and that's one reason they may gravitate towards sense gratification, because they renounced it, and they weren't on a level where they could renounce that much, because renunciation ultimately has to be a byproduct of your Krishna consciousness, specifically your taste. So if you try to renounce beyond your taste or beyond what's natural, even though you want to renounce that way because it makes sense to do it or you have a desire to do it, but if you don't have the qualification to do it, it can backfire. And then those, those of us who have a mentality which is kind of all or nothing, either, you, either you're in first place or you don't play the game. You know, so some of us have that mentality. So, so it's kind of like if I can't be a pure devotee, why should I even try to be Krishna conscious? And so sometimes they just, you know, why should I even try this? I can't be a pure devotee. I just give it up. I don't know if you've seen that. I don't know if you have that mentality. But it's a perfectionist mentality. If it's not perfect, why do it? It's not. If it's not, if it's not perfect, then um, it's not worth doing. So we've talked about that a little bit, that you don't evaluate perfection and devotional service on a material level. And really your perfection is that you keep trying. And so that's important, the effort trying. But what I would say in regards to this is that we all have to think 
what is it that I have to do? What is it that I have to avoid? How is it that I have to understand myself and my application of Krishna consciousness in a way that I can be steady? That steadiness may mean that I'm steady on a lower platform than I want to be, but on that lower platform I can be steady. Just like sometimes we tell somebody who's beginning to chant. Chant a number of rounds that you can maintain every day, rather than chant eight one day, zero for two days, 16 for three days, 800 for four days, zero for a month, because that happens. Well, eight, you can't chant 800 in a day. But you know what I'm saying. It's like just oscillating. You know, I'm really fired up. I'm going to do 64. I want to make up for the fact that I didn't chant any rounds last week. And then after I chant 64, wow, it was so hard. I'm so blown out. I don't want to chant Joppa for the next week. You know. So pick a number that you can maintain every day. You know, okay, four rounds. I can do four rounds. Well, this is not, not for initiated devotees, but we're talking about somebody new. So that's the idea. So sometimes you have to look at your devotional service um, and your unsteadiness and ask yourself, why am I unsteady and what do I have to do to become steady? Maybe I'm engaged in a task that's just not my nature. Maybe I'm engaged in a task that is, is way beyond my austerity threshold. And even though, so whenever I try to do it, eventually I burn out, I crash, I, I give it up, I go, you know, stick my face in a bucket of sweet rice and just drown my sorrows in sweet rice. Maybe we could write a song. Drown your sorrows in, in a bucket of sweet rice. Have you ever done that? Actually, it works sometimes. Like you're really going through a difficult time and you eat some really good sweet rice, sometimes it pulls you back together. But um, you know what I'm saying, sometimes um, we give up. And so um, we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we're making it where Krishna consciousness is, is so difficult for us. We've, we've set goals that are so difficult that we keep becoming unsteady because we can't steadily maintain those goals. Now, listening to this, you might be thinking, well, is Mahatma Prabhu saying that I should chant less rounds and follow less principles? Well, obviously, if you're initiated, you've promised to chant a certain number of rounds and follow a certain number of principles. So uh, we can't, recommend that you do less, although sometimes it does happen that a guru in, in consultation with a disciple who's not able to follow may say, okay, for now then do less and build up to more because for some reason they're, they're not able to maintain it. So that's more of an exception. But in other areas of your life, how much you're sleeping, how much service you're doing, the kind of service you're doing, the, the goals that you have, the kind of austerity you're doing, um, the level of renunciation you're trying to maintain in your life in general, um, things that you've renounced doing that maybe you could be doing in devotional service that are important for you by because of your nature, things like that. So the goal... Like like the story we told the other day when Prabhupada was talking about a sannyasi who fell down and he said, it doesn't matter, you can serve in any position. And, and 
one of the things we can understand is that Prabhupada meant if he's serving, then he's serving. So if, if he needs to be, if he needs to give up his sannyas, not that we, it's recommended or encouraged. But in the ultimate end, Prabhupada's point was if he's serving steadily, if that's the best position for him, then fine, he can do that. So naturally, if you're a sannyasi, you, you don't think about getting married, or you shouldn't. But sometimes, if you become a sannyasi at an early age, and you get older, you, you may start thinking about um, marriage, that, that I'm not able to do this. And we could say, in a sense, before one would make any mis uh, um, fall down because of that desire, he might, you know, officially say, I have to give up my sannyas and get married, you know, rather than just do something impetuous, you know, have an lo impetuous love affair. So Prabhupada accepted that. And ultimately, he said it didn't matter how what ashram you're in, you're serving Krishna. But the, the point, and this is in the Bhagavatam, the point is, when Prabhupada said, whatever position is, is best to fight with Maya. So where... What's the best position for you? In this case, in this discussion, would be what's the best position for you to be steady? And so, okay, if, if I adjust things this way and I'll be steady, I have to adjust this. I have my own story. It's, it's kind of, it's an interesting story. I remember, it was a, probably like 1978, 79, I was a Sankirtan leader in Los Angeles. There were, there was maybe total of like 25 men. I was maybe maybe 20 of them um, I was working with directly. I was in charge of planning where where they would go on Sankirtan, and then I would also go out at least on the weekends. So, um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, I remember... You know, a Prabhupada had said, you know, to be a Sankirtan leader is very precious, it's very valuable, very precious position. But my nature was more, was le I didn't, I'd get bored. How should I say it? I found, I think you can relate to this. You ever find something really burdensome, boring, it's just, you don't want to do it. It's not interesting to you. It's not inspiring to you. But someone else loves it. I was just uh, listening to a, a video the other day. It was a, it was a video of a conference that took place. Maybe it was 1999. Maybe the first. I think it was the first conference of uh, women in Iskand. I don't know the name of it. Uh, and a devotee's mother had met Prabhupada. She had helped Prabhupada form the 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 BBT, the Book Trust. So they they brought her in to talk about her experience with Prabhupada. And, God, I keep forgetting what I'm going to say. I didn't sleep. I was up late last night. I couldn't sleep. Why was I talking about her? Hmm. So she said, at that time, she'd been a lawyer for like 30, 40 years. And she explained that to everyone. So this is, what, this is who I am, and this is what I do, and I've been a lawyer in California. And it that point, I think probably the oldest devotee there was probably 34, maybe. No, it's 1999. Well, maybe it was 19. I forget, but 
I think that the average age of the devotees was in their early 30s. So she said, I've been a lawyer longer than all of you, any of you have been alive. And then, she, and then my first thought was, oh my God, that must have been really difficult. And she said, I loved every moment of it. And it just reminded me of something I knew, but it was good to be reminded that some people love doing what I hate doing. Some people find it interesting to do things that I just find burdensome and boring. And so I was a Sangritan leader, which is, which is a very, very supposedly relishable position. But for me, it was relishable. But for me, organizing, um, managing, I just it wasn't interesting. I couldn't, I couldn't keep my mind focused on it. It was like, okay, just get it done so we can move on to something interesting or inspiring. Now, I know that sounds, kind of sounds like, well, you should have been inspired, the Sankirtan leader, Sankirtan movement. Yeah. Okay, should, 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 that's fine. But I used to think I would sit in my office having to manage everything, and I'd be thinking, I wish I were in Mayapur teaching. That's, that's why I was 27, 28, 29. And my mind was just in Mayapur teaching. I was dealing with the Sankirtan, but that's where my mind was. And I was Sankirtan leader for many years in several temples. I had been temple president four and a half times because the half time was, let me see. I was temple president in Vancouver, Johannesburg, Mauritius. Then I went back again to Mauritius. And then we had a preaching center in Austin that was five. And then for two weeks, Laguna Beach. So five and a half. Well, let's say five, five plus. And my experience as Sankirtan leader or temple president was I would lose, at a certain point, I would lose interest. It was like there was, you know, the feeling, there was no inspiration in doing it. And so it was difficult to be steady because. It wasn't, it wasn't really my dharma, management and like that. It's, it's okay, I can do it. But as a, as a full-time service, you know, teaching, explaining Krishna consciousness to new people, developing courses. You all know I do a video every day. How could you do a video every day? That's like crazy. And it's been over three years or four years or something. That's crazy. Um, because by nature... I'm, I always think of philosophically, so I al I'm always getting ideas and realizations, so it's actually very easy. And then I get an idea, I go into my studio and I turn the camera on, and you know I have the idea fairly clear, clear, and I just talk. I don't know exactly how it's going to come out, but it's quite easy for me to do it. I've never, I've never had to do a video over. I go, that wasn't good, let's do it over. I just turn on the camera and do it. That's my nature. Now, obviously, not everybody could do that. And some people would be frightened to do that. I'd sit in front of a camera and go, I can't say anything. It's just the camera. I don't, can you write out a script? I'll read it. And you give me a script and say, Mahatma Prabhu, can you read this? And I go, no, I can't read it. Well, then just read it. But it won't come out right because I'm not used to that. It's not my nature. So anyway, you understand what I'm saying. So the, the point is that when I was doing these services of management, it was... It was about two years before I would tell the authorities, I can't do this anymore. It's just, 
I, it's like I just I don't have the it's like you're walking up a stairway and you're exhausted and it's like, you know, the 108th stairway and you're trying to get to the top and you, and you say, I can't go any further. I don't have the energy. It's exactly what I felt. That's the best way I could say. I didn't have the energy to do that service. And this kept happening in that service. You know, temple president, I shouldn't go. After two years, I just say, I can't do this anymore. And I never stayed in charge of a temple for more than two years, or sometimes, um, a, you know, sometimes a year, just after a year. It's like, I, this is not me. I, I, I should be out teaching, not, you know, organizing schedules and um, organizing this and organizing that. It's just not inspiring. Although it's an inspiring for other people. They like doing it. They get ideas. They like executing them and so forth. So at a certain point, maybe it was 15 years ago or so, I began focus, focusing on teaching. I said, this is what I'm going to do because I understood this is my nature. I understood anything else I do. I'll, I won't be steady. So I started doing that. And then I never burned out. And I'm still doing it. And so that shows that sometimes you have to investigate, am I not steady because I just haven't found my dharma, my service, my position? And so that's, that, that definitely can be a reason. You're, you're looking, you know, what's, where's your inspiration? and how you can use that inspiration and service, then generally you'll find at that point you'll be steady or more steady or perfectly steady. Or you'll do it your whole life. This is, I love doing this. I could do this my whole life. I could do this for lifetimes. That should be the feeling. I've got this service. I've connected with my nature. I could, I could do this for the next hundred lifetimes. I love this. Whatever it is. If for you, it could be management. Um, it could be, you know, more artistic type things. Um, dramas, um, writing, whatever it is. There's so many things. So I think that's important for all of us. Of course, then you're asking, well, how do I know? That's for another class. And if you go, if you go on my website, I think, I don't know, finding your, uh, finding your Dharma and the mission of Prabhupada, I think there's on SoundCloud. Uh, and I think also my website, there's a little... Um, a questionnaire you can answer, which helps you understand your nature. But usually, as you get older, you start to notice that you gravitate more tw towards certain things. Like Indrajimna Swami, he's he's like the like you know festivals. It's just it's always been Harinam Sankirtan and festivals has always been what he's loved to do, and he's still doing it. And the reason he's still doing it is because he loves doing it. So he could do it. He could do it for lifetimes. He probably would tell you if I come back in my next life, I want to continue doing these festivals. It's his nature. He loves it. And he's created amazing festival programs. Uh, and it's helped so many people and engaged so many devotees and exposed Krishna consciousness to hundreds of thousands of people. Someone else, it's, you know, by Sheshika Prabhu, it's, it's book distribution. That is, that's his heart. That's what makes him... You know, like they say, what what is it? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What 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 do you wake up for? You know, some for some, Gopal Krishna Maharaj, You know, just open more temples, more temples. It's just expanding Krishna consciousness through various projects. That's what gets him up in the morning. And and 
you know, you look at what he's doing and say, how is he doing that? Um, that's what he's good at. That's what he likes to do. That's where his inspiration is. It's, it's not, he can build a temple. He's like, how do you build a temple? How do you do that? And where do you get the money? It's not a problem for him. Because when it's your nature, generally, you figure things out easily because that's how your mind works. If you're a manager, you figure things out easily. If you're not a manager, you, you, you can't figure things out. You have meetings that go on for weeks and you can't figure it out because you're not a, really a manager. It's not your nature. And if you get a good manager, he just comes in in like 10 minutes. He says, this is what you should do. And everyone's like, oh, that's a good idea. How come we didn't think of that? Well, you're not managers. That's why. Um, so this is, I mean, this is real life. This, I, I'm not making this up. This is, I have, <laughs> have experience of this. So I think that's important for all of you to consider. What is it? What is that service? And then, of course, ashram. What ashram should I be in? Because sometimes you'll see a devotee who's unsteady, and the only reason they're unsteady is because they're in the wrong ashram. Of course, the problem is you can't easily change ashrams. You can't easily get out of Grihastha ashram. You know, if you're a brahmachari and you say, I'm in the wrong ashram, I should get married, that's not a problem. If you're a brahmachari and say, you know, I'm in the wrong ashram, I want to take sannyas. If you're qualified, that can be done. But when you're in the Grasta ashram and you, and you think, you know, actually, this is the wrong ashram, uh, that's not a situation in which Prabhupada would want you to leave unless your wife is agreeable and you're actually qualified and you wouldn't remarry if you left it. But that's the exception. But often, 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 when devotees are unsteady, they need to look at these two things. Your ashram and your varna. Are you in the wrong ashram? Or are you in the wrong varna? And often the case is, yes, I'm in the wrong ashram. That's why I'm unsteady. I'm in the wrong varna. That's why I'm unsteady. So that's, that's important to look at. And I would like to emphasize, as Prabhupada did, that steadiness is extremely important in Krishna consciousness because it's that steadiness over a long period of time that's going to make a huge difference. But if you're going up and down and up and down, then one time you go down, you may never go up again. So, um, you know, I know we all want to be up here, but our steady point may be down here. And I know for some of you, that's really, it's really hard to, to acknowledge that I can only be steady here because I want to be up here. Um, Um, so, thank you, Krista, for putting that, finding your dharma. I'll get to your comments soon. Uh, so, I think this is important to, to realize that the, the point at which the point at which we become steady may not be the point where we want to be situated. It may be lower, unfortunately. It's like, you know, I want to be up here, but when I try to be up here, it's too difficult. I always... I, I, I sometimes, then I bottom out and I have to climb my way back up. But instead of climbing up to a platform where I can be steady, I try to climb back up because this platform is attractive to me. This is where I want to be. But I'm not qualified yet. I don't have the, I don't have the, the spiritual strength to be steady on that level. So sometimes we just have to find that point. We have to acknowledge and say, okay, 
I'm try. I, I keep if I'm a yo-yo. If I you know I call this a yo-yo bhakta, although yo-yo probably has some Sanskrit equivalent. Yo-yo yum yum, you know Bhagavad Gita. Yo-yo yum yum, but I don't mean it as Sanskrit. I mean it as an actual yo-yo. That little toy that you play like this, it goes up and down. So I sometimes have named devotees who are unsteady yo-yo bhaktas. Not like yo yo bhakta, and not like yo yo yum yum, but yo yo bhakta. I mean, you know, high low, high low. And so, if you experience that, I think the obvious, the obvious um, solution is going to be to find that position where you stop being a yo-yo. You know, get the yo-yo, and then it spins and hold it, and it's spinning in the middle. Where where can you get it? Well, it'll spin and it won't fall. Actually, yo-yos always fall, but you understand the idea. And if you have this perfectionist mentality, that's going to be hard to do because you want to be on the top. And want to be wanting to be on the top is great, but whether you can actually be there now, that's what you have to determine. And so the hard part is to to live your life on this level when you really want to be on this level. But all I can say is, if you don't live steadily on this level, you won't come to this level. And if you try to come to this level, you won't be able to stay. You'll always come down if it's if it's above your ability. So when you see a devotee who's steady, generally they're comfortable in what they're doing in their service. They're comfortable in the level of austerity they can, they're maintaining. It's not that they're not trying to increase. But they finally understood what is that point in which they can be steady. So I just wanted to emphasize steadiness. And the last thing I want to say is that in it's very, very common that in order to be renounced, a devotee will neglect certain needs they have or neglect to understand their, how should we say, yeah, neglect, neglect to understand their nature. And so um, they kind of repressed certain desires. And then at some point, those desires come out and they're not even prepared for them because they thought they had transcended them. And so if we become too renounced too soon, it can backfire. And that's when you get this, I'm just going to give up everything mentality. You know, I tried, it didn't work. No, what you tried for didn't work because you tried for something by repressing yourself so much that eventually your desires came out and then you thought, well, I must not be Krishna conscious because I have all these desires. Now, the problem was you never addressed those desires and how to engage them in the first place. But you, or maybe you didn't know them, or maybe you were preached to that this is all maya, and you should just, you know, completely surrender, which we're all preached to, pretty much. Or that's how we at least process it in the beginning of our devotional service. It's very common to process. Everything is maya, which means everything, all my needs and desires are maya. And I just want to, you know, I just want to engage fully in Krishna consciousness and forget everything, which is fine. That's, you know, as a brahmachari, brahmacharini, that's basically what we do. But at some point, we have to stop and say, okay, for the long haul, who am I and what am I going to do? Then again, there's varnashram. 
What's your ashram? What's your varna going to be? What is your nature? What needs do you have that you put on hold as a brahmachari so you could focus on your preaching, which is great. Now, the sannyasis, they're pretty good at doing that their whole life. They're by nature renounced, probably from a past life. They already came in on that level. And so sometimes we look at that and we say, I want to be like that, but we have to be realistic. Can you be that way? So repression has caused um, a lot of devotees to leave Krishna consciousness because it's like they're shooting for something that's too high. And after years and years and years of struggling and trying and getting up every day and Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna, you know, they're like one, one day they just crash and go, it's not working. The thing is, it is working, but if you're trying to jump 10 feet, then it's your first day as a high jumper, you got to move the pole down to like three feet to learn how to do it. And there, you know, there's this psychology. If the pole's at three feet and I jump over it, I feel like six, I feel like I accomplished something. I'm successful. But if the pole's at six feet and I, and I crash into it, then I feel like I'm useless. So you don't have to understand this psychology. If you put the pole too high for yourself, you'll always crash into the pole and you'll always feel like, well, I can't be Krishna conscious because I can't jump over the six or 10 foot pole, however you, but you put it lower and you jump over it and you go, oh, I can do that. That works. Okay, then put it up another half foot. Okay, I did that. Practice on that. Put it up. Practice, you know, so gradually you put it up and you're, you're successful along the way. But what happens for a lot of devotees, they put the pole up super high and they're just like, I'm going to keep crashing into that pole till I get it, you know? So they're trying to jump and jump. And after so many years, like they never jumped high enough. And then they just give up. And they go, what's the use, you know? Um, that's, so these are just some things I've seen. So um, I'm sure you can relate to this. You've probably seen it or maybe seen it in your own self. So I'm going to go back to your comments. The comments is I, where all the... Um, I don't know if we want to call it controversy, but the comments and questions sometimes bring up the real the realities and difficulties of the issue we're talking about. So Ajaynitai quotes Brahmabhuta for Sanatma. Nasochiti Nakangshiti, devotee is an ocean of mercy, detached from distress and happiness. I don't know about the ocean of mercy. That's another verse. Brahmabhuta prasanatma means on the Brahmabhuta platform you're happy. And the sochiti means you don't lament. And the kankshiti means you don't hanker. That's, yeah. So that was in relation to this man doubting Arjun's level because he seemed to be lamenting. And then Prabhupada saying, no, he was steady. That's the sign of his pure devotion. No matter what happened, he fought. So we have to think like that. Okay, no matter what happens, I won't give up my service. I won't give up my sadhana. And certainly, sometimes in our life, something's going to happen that isn't great. That could throw us off. Okay. Jairate says, Your perfection is that you keep trying. That is brilliant and something many of us need to hear. Yeah. Well, last, um, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago, I, one of the classes was about that. You're, you know, defining success. You know, if you ever use the word success, 
you have to define it in Krishna conscious terms because Krishna conscious success is um, not necessarily you jumped over the 10 foot pole, but you jumped over the three foot pole and you jumped every day. And next week, three and a half foot. <clears throat> next week, four foot. Next week, four and a half foot. Not that you couldn't jump over the 10 foot pole. So you had to redefine success. And even you couldn't jump over the three foot pole, but you kept practicing until you could. <clears throat> and your practice is your success. That's that's the point. So, um, yeah. I never, Jai Radha, I never saw Prabhupada chastise anyone for trying. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe if they made some huge mistake, practical mistake, but generally, uh, he didn't. He didn't. Okay. Gopinath says, food is a great way to overcome sadness as long as it doesn't become your drug of choice for the rest of your life to overcome sadness. I think sweet rice with blueberries is a great way to overcome your misery. As long as it's offered. And I and it sounds funny, but I say that with seriousness. But... Um, But what I meant was that sometimes we've seen devotees just take shelter in sense gratification. As you know, this is the way out of my misery is just to rev up the sense gratification. And and there is some truth to it. Just don't rev it up too much. As I was saying, sometimes we repress ourselves so our level of austerity is 10 foot and we can't maintain it. And so in that sense, I need a little sense gratification. Like Prabhupada would say, sometimes, you know, like Grihasta Ashram, you know, it's like if you want sense gratification, go to Grihasta Ashram. So what did he mean? Well, if your pole's 10 foot and you can't jump over it, then bring it down. So it's true. Bring it down. What does bring it down mean? A little more sense gratification. You have your own home. You make your own money. So you, you can get things you wouldn't get as a brahmachari. You, you can raise a family. You get a license for sex, a restricted license, but you get one. So, so that's what Prabhupada's saying. If you can't jump a ten foot, bring it down, but don't um, don't bring it down so low. Don't bring it down to the point that there's too much sense gratification, and then it becomes a problem for your devotional service. That's the point. So it's true. Sometimes we renounce too much and we, we can't, we're not ready for it. So, Christe says, due to perfectionist tendencies, definitely I've had these problems and still do. But facing real life situations, the sharp corners get smoother. Real wisdom for real people, for sure. <laughs> Maybe we should call it real wisdom to make real people. <laughs> Real well, maybe we call it real wisdom for people who want to be real. I think that's a good one. Perfectionism uh, can be used for or against you. So it's not like we don't want to be perfect. 
we just don't want to become depressed if we're not perfect. So perfectionists, they have the good qualities that they like to do things well. They have the fault that if it doesn't come out perfectly, they become discouraged, sometimes give up, uh, become depressed, angry, <laughs> critical. Why aren't you doing that perfectly? What's wrong with you? And they become really critical of people who don't do things perfectly. They become critical of themselves for not doing things perfectly. They become critical of ISKCON because it's not perfect. Have you noticed? Am I the only one who noticed ISKCON's not perfect? Am I the only one who noticed devotees are not always perfect? Do you notice that also? Yeah, so for perfectionists, that's really difficult because their expectations for everyone and themselves is basically perfection. And sometimes people come to ISKCON after reading Prabhupada's books and they think they wouldn't really know uh, without being part of ISKCON, but they join ISKCON and they think, well, all the devotees are living exactly the way Prabhupada has explained in his books. That would make sense. I mean, you're a devotee. Prabhupada's your spiritual master or your grand spiritual master. And it would just, you know, logically, you would think, oh, this is what everybody does, right? And then you join, and you see, well, everyone's on different levels, so not everybody follows perfectly. And if you have this perfectionist mentality, you could easily get discouraged and say, well, I don't want to be part of ISKCON, because there are people in ISKCON who don't live exactly the way Prabhupada wants them to live, and that's really discouraging. Um, it's kind of like saying, I don't like this hospital. You know, I need an operation. I don't like this hospital. Why? Because there's sick people in it. So, you know, we're curing people. They're not coming cured. So, yes, devotees are not perfect. And so if, if we want, they're perfect in a certain sense because they're giving their lives to Krishna. But in terms of their character, they're working on it. In terms of their devotion, they're working on it. So that's the curse of being a perfectionist. It's, it's really, really, really difficult if you want everything perfect. I would recommend perfectionists go back to Godhead because then everything's perfect. But here, in the material world, if you're a perfectionist, it's like a curse. You're in a place where nothing's perfect and you want it to be perfect. I mean, what could be more of a curse than that? So then you have to be a realist and adjust to it and accept the fact that you will not be as Krishna conscious as you want to be right today. And you just have to accept that. It's a reality. And other people will also not be. So, Krishna Karshini says, I believe you are aware. Excuse me. That there are initiated devotees who don't chant 16 rounds. Yeah, some chant 25, some chant 32. I'm aware of that. Yeah. That's not what she means. Less than 16. You mean less than 16. Yeah. Because if you don't chant 16, you could chant 64. I don't chant 16. Oh, disaster. No, I chant 64. That's also not chanting 16. So, yeah. I'm aware of some devotees who chant more than 16, definitely. The ones who chant less than 16, I'm not aware because they don't tell me. I'll, only the ones who chant more than 16 tell me. <laughs> I'm actually more aware of people who chant more than 16 than less. But anyway, 
Krishna Karshani, I'm having fun with her. She's saying, perhaps I'm aware that not all initiated devotees chant 16. And Krishna Karshani, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. Definitely aware. Some chant 16, but they miss a day here or a day there, or 12 one day. Or I had a bad day yesterday. Um, sometimes I got so busy yesterday, I couldn't finish my rounds. So sometimes it happens, but then you know, I make it up. Today I make it up. I know devotees who are initiated and they chant nothing because chanting few rounds makes them feel guilty. Hmm, interesting. Because few rounds, they don't feel enough, so they, uh, so they chant nothing. I think we as a movement have to deal with initiated devotees who won't chant 16 and they want to still be devotees and we cannot make them feel pressured. Yeah, it's really, it's um, what I would suggest. Is in that case, they should approach your spiritual master if, if he's approachable and tell him and say, can we negotiate an, another number, at least temporarily? And if that's not possible, then they should understand exactly what you said. Something is better than nothing. And rather than feeling guilty because I'm not doing 16, maybe I could feel good that I'm doing four. All right, how can I feel good if I'm doing four if I bow to chant 16? Yeah, I understand that. But zero is not better than four. But if I don't chant any, then I don't have to think about the fact that I'm not chanting 16. Krishna Krishna, you know, I think you might remember that story I told when this counselor would tell people who weren't chanting 16, you don't have to chant if you don't want to. And what she did was, she, by saying that, it helped them look in their own heart and see if they really wanted to. And in many cases, they found that desire beyond the, I have to chant 16, she helped them find that I want to, and they started doing it again. So that may also be another strategy, you know. Um, for whatever reason, maybe they feel obligated, pressured. It's not natural. They don't really want. It's not coming. The motive is not coming from a a, a genuine desire to chant, a real desire. Maybe it was like artificially pushed upon them. They always felt forced. So if you can help people find their own desire, you know, say, well, you don't have to chant if you don't want to. That was your decision to take initiation. So, you know, look at it that way. But also simultaneously to help them understand four is better than zero. Four is four times better than zero. Well, it's four times better than one. It's infinitely greater than zero. Anyway, we'll just say four is four times better than zero. Eight is eight times better. Twelve is twelve. So, and then and then if we also talk to them about the the bar at ten feet, just bring it down to where you can do it, because the point is, if if they say, well, I could chant three or four, but I feel guilty. But the point is, if they chant three or four every day. You know, then there's the chance they'll chant six at some point or eight at some point. There's a chance it will go up. But if they chant zero, then 
it, there may be less of a chance that one day they wake up and say, okay, I'm, I'm tired of not chanting, I'll chant. I'm sure that happens, but probably more likely to happen if they maintain some level. And it will obviously be better for their Krishna consciousness. And as we know, some devotees' 16 rounds, are, they probably don't even get four good rounds in the 16. So I, I can't say this um, without making a disclaimer. You know, it, this is not to say you don't have to chant 16 rounds and your 16 rounds are useless, but I think we all know that sometimes out of the 16, we don't even get four good ones or two good ones or one good one some days. Some days we're lucky we get all good ones. We're lucky or we're, we're doing things properly, but sometimes they're all bad. And so, you know, chanting four good rounds, what's better, chanting four good rounds or 16 bad rounds? That's like saying, what's better, $4 or 16 counterfeit dollars? What's better, four ripe bananas or four overripe unedible bananas, or 16 unedible overripe bananas? So, the, the quality of the chanting of four good rounds will, will have a lot, will have be very powerful, could be more powerful or would be more powerful than 16 bad rounds. That's a philosophical reality and it's a practical reality. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to chant 16 rounds because we chant 16 bad. I go, oh, I could chant four good, but I, if I chant 16, they're all going to be bad. Some devotees say that, but, you know, Prabhupada wanted us to master 16, so the goal is to chant 16 good rounds. But just factually speaking, 16 really, really bad rounds, it's, you know, four good rounds will help you more than 16 bad rounds. So these are things that we can understand if we become slack. Okay, so the next comment is by Chris and it gives you a link to finding your dharma. And there should be somewhere within that a sheet that asks you questions that will help you understand more about yourself. Okay, Krishna Krishnakashini says, what about devotees, male and female, who have desire to get married, but they rather should not do it because they will make potential wife or husband <laughs> miserable? Others just see that those persons are messed up. Yeah. Well, there's a devotee I was just speaking to. He has a course he teaches, and it's just for women. And, and the course is how to be a good wife. But it actually has nothing to do with how to, to deal with the husband. It has to do with themselves, how to be more self-satisfied, more stable, etc., how to be happier, um, so that is important because the problem is, you know, we're always doing these, do the charts, see if they're compatible, and then you get like this ultra, ultra compatible couple, and it doesn't work out. And they're wondering why. Or you get this ultra, ultra uncompatible couple, and it works out, more or less. It's okay. They, they stay together. Maybe not the, the two happiest people you've ever seen, but they're okay. They stay together. 
And that super compatible couple, which were, were like in heaven, you know, the first week they met, and you see them a few years later, and they look like they're really unhappy. And, and lots and lots of problems. It could be, or often is, because one or both of them has um, emotional issues that make it very difficult for them to have healthy relationships. So although otherwise they're compatible, the emotional show gets in the way. They have like huge expectations for the other person, expectations a person could never meet, or they become codependent, they can't be happy unless the other person is doing A, B, and C for them every day. Um, and, and so many other things that you're probably more aware of than I am. That can, you know, low self, ex excessive low self-esteem, then you, you, know, you depend on your partner to build you up. Then if you have two people with low self-esteem, they're depending on one another to build one another up, and then it's really, really difficult. So it is true. If you have some personal problems, expectations, or high levels of intolerance, or, you know, it could be so many things. So I always suggest for everybody, even if you're a normal person, before you enter a marriage, just, you know, become more self-aware so that you don't throw your, you don't allow your own personal challenges to cause you to blame the other person for what you should be working on yourself, because that's ultimately what happens. You know, I blame you for something that's actually my problem. And it's because I had this expectation or this particular weakness that I was needing you or depending on you to do something, which I should have done myself. And now I'm blaming you for not doing it. So this these kinds of things. And so you take this compatible couple and someone has issues that create relationship challenges and then they have a bad relationship. So yes, that's a very good point. Um, but I often tell people that. They say, I want to get married. I say, are you qualified to be married? That's like saying, I want to start a business. Well, what, what do you know about business? I want to become a this or that. Well, what do you know about it? Are you trained to do it? And so in ordinary life, it makes sense, right? You know, I want to become a, a this or that. Okay, I'll go to school and get trained. I was just thinking yesterday, I don't know why I was thinking of this. I just was watching something. And I was thinking, it, there should be courses in school that everyone has to take about marriage because the divorce rate is so high. And there should be courses in school that help people become more emotionally mature. Because if people understood what marriage is, they understood the, the mood and mentality of the opposite sex and how to deal with them, and they had more emotional maturity, there would be better relationships. So I think it's a very good point. If you, whatever you're going to do, become qualified, and especially when you want to get married. But most people, you know, what's the qualification for being married? Falling in love or falling in lust, depending on what you fell into. That becomes the main criterion. Why are you marrying her or him? Well, they, he's funny, makes me laugh, makes me feel good, he's got big muscles, he's handsome. You know, it's not, it's not the criteria. It may be a partial criteria, but um, are you ready to be married? Are you qualified to be that man's wife? 
you know, you want to be initiated. Are you qualified to be a disciple? You're always looking for the, who's the best guru? The guru that inspires me, the guru, you know, this or that. Yeah, well, hello, what about you? Are you qualified? You want to find the ultimate guru? Are you qualified to be the disciple of the ultimate guru? That's a better way of thinking. I, I want to marry this woman. I want to marry this man. Great. Become qualified. I always tell devotees who are looking for a spouse and they can't find one, I say, I think maybe the more important than looking for one is become qualified to be one. And then Krishna sees you're qualified, then he'll send somebody who you would be qualified to marry. I think that's another powerful strategy. But a lot of people enter marriage and they're not qualified and they become qualified in the process after creating hell, literally, in the relationship. As a means of survival, they have to go into counseling or maybe even go into therapy if they really have serious problems. That should have done before. Definitely before. Um, uh, yeah. So, good point, Krishna Karshan. Marco says, thank you for sharing your experience with us. It's going to help us a lot to analyze ourselves. Each of us has talents that may well be hidden. It may take half the time of your life before you find your Swadharma. Yeah, you're supposed to actually find out when you're in Guru Kula. <laughs> We're starting a little late, Marco. You're supposed to happen in Guru Kula. Um, you know, it's so interesting. You know this verse in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says, do your dharma, don't do someone else's dharma. To do someone else's dharma is dangerous. You know, that's an interesting verse. What's Krishna referring to? Well, he's referring to Arjuna doing the dharma of a brahmana. And so, naturally, our material side thinks, well, Krishna is saying, even if you could do it perfectly, you shouldn't do it. That doesn't make sense. Why should I not do something if I could do it perfectly? Well, just because you can do it perfectly, doesn't actually mean you're qualified. Like, we give the example, it probably gives the example, a teacher has to have brahminical qualifications, cleanliness, tolerance, sense control, and so forth. So he could perfectly teach a subject, but not have the qualification of a teacher, because by nature he may be of another varna. So even though he can perfectly teach, he shouldn't do it, because ultimately it will create havoc, or in, at least in a proper culture, the teachers have to be exemplary people, have to be like priests, basically. Teachers are kind of like priests, in a sense. So that's what Krishna means. Don't, don't do another's dharma. Um, another thing that Krishna means is that you ultimately can't steadily do another person's dharma if it's not your nature, because you will always act according to your nature. And so Krishna is saying it just creates problems. So it behooves us to find out our dharma and use that in Krishna's service. Shravaniya says, sometimes the reason people are unsteady is the problem of not having their own house, yeah, or sufficient financial situation. So that's an ashram problem. I used to be very unsteady without the above, and I was very surprised when my so-called External situation changed, and I became, I became, my, I became steady, peaceful, and satisfied. And the only reason why it really changed was that 
I open my heart to Krishna and ask him to help me. Suddenly things which were very difficult became very easy. Krishna provided what we lacked. And also, um, for women, for many, children is a physiological, biological, psychological need that if they try to repress or avoid or sometimes rationalize away with philosophy that it's just a problem and you know it's going to affect my sadhana and so much work and this and that. Um, they're repressing a deep need that they have that most women have. And once they have children, then they see, oh, yeah. That's, that's why I was so crazy. I thought I was crazy. Everybody said I was crazy. But actually, I just needed... You know, to be a mother and a wife, and now everything's fine. So, um, thank you, Shavaniya, for that. It's true. Just yesterday, I was dealing with a devotee, a similar situation, having doubts about having children. You know why she had doubts about having children? She heard too many classes from sannyasis about the horrors of Grihastha life. So she had all these doubts. But I know that she wants to have children. I know that will be good for her. But she had all these doubts. And when I read those doubts, I thought it's really sad that we would make women doubtful about raising a family, which is so natural for them. And it can be so problematic if they don't. Now... If you're very renounced, you, it's like you just you don't need you don't need so many things. But until you're on that level, there's certain things you need. And like Shravaniya says, if you don't have them, you'll be unsteady. And once you have them, you'll be steady. Like what? Well, like I have my home, I have my family, my husband, my children, this, that, things I need, things I want. There's no reason to be unsteady now other than just gross doses of maya, you know, trying to pull me away from Krishna. But in terms of material facility, varna and ashram, there's no reason. And generally, when the varna and ashram are healthy, then you're steady, generally. Always exceptions, because you may not be living your ashram properly. Hmm. So um, now everyone's going to get married tomorrow if it is class, right? And on Wednesday, you'll all say, hey, I just got married on Tuesday. Everything's great. Um, Krishna Karshani says, what if somebody knows their dharma, but his or her life situation is not letting him or her to fulfill it? Of course, tolerance is required in that situation, but I would... I would question, first thing I would ask them is, well, what do you have to do to be able to fulfill it? And can you start working towards it slowly, slowly, slowly? Because if you can, it will have big, it will pay, pay off lots of dividends in the future because you'll finally be able to do what most inspires you and you will see how it, it helps you. And it will help many people because when you're inspired, um, naturally, people around you get inspired, and you can offer them a lot more than if you're not inspired. So, um, I don't know the exact situations. It's hard to just speak generally. Um, I was in that situation for many years, and I always thought, how can I do this? 
And the realization that I had was I, w I had a business, and I'm not really inclined for business, but I needed to do something to support my family. And then at some point I thought, you know, I, I chose... I chose this business, I thought, because, well, it's easy to do. It's a way to make money. And I set it up. I said, so I said to myself, and I had been studying this also about creating, creating a different life. How do, you, how do you get out of your circumstances and create what you want? And so then I began thinking, well, you know, I created this other life. And, and I wasn't really conscious when I was creating it of where it would end up. And I wasn't conscious that I, I could actually create something that's more in line with my dharma that would also make money. I didn't realize, I didn't know. Either I didn't realize it or I, I think it was more, I didn't know how to do it. And then when I started to understand that I could do it and I, I did have different options, then I told myself, well, you created... You created this business, and it's not the business you want. So why don't you just create the business you like? You, you, you know, because everything in your life ultimately, you're making decisions. And so then I thought, well, how could I do? It? How could I create it? So it started with that assumption. So if you have that assumption that I've created the life I have now, if it's not exactly the way, way I want it, I could create differently. But I have to start thinking how to do that. So it has to begin with that faith that I can create something better. And that's how it always is. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's so many people in the world that feel the same way, that I, you know, I, can't, I don't have a way out of my life the way it is. But you'll find that the people who got themselves out of that rut that they were in did it because they knew they really didn't have to accept the life that they were living. They could make choices and and look at things differently so that they could they could work their way into a, a new dharma or work their way in into being more successful at what they're doing or whatever it is they want to do so that would be my general advice based based on my own experience and based on what i've studied on this topic and based uh, based on what i've seen other people do now, of course, some people don't have that nature to like break out of the mold and do that. I understand that. And so if that's the case, or circumstantially there's nothing else they can do, then they have to find something in their life that, that inspires them. So if it's not your occupation, then when you come home, let's say you are you like to write or paint or do music or whatever it is, so you do that when you come home. It's not going to be the way you make money, but it shouldn't be neglected. So that's... That's my realization of that. Enthusiasm and determination are two great friends of the sadhaka. Sincerity in his dress and humility in his ornamental jewel. Yeah, enthusiasm and determination. So often, uh, the point of this class is often that enthusiasm and determination are byproducts of, of being in the right varna and ashram. Ajay Nitai says... How to develop the taste to build the steadiness. Sometimes I want rounds to finish quickly. Um, I don't know if steadiness is a taste. It's more of a duty. It's more of a it's more of a 
I think it's just, I think the answer is, you know, just what I'm talking about in this class. But you're, you're talking about steadiness and sadhana. And I was talking about steadiness more in terms of service or overall Krishna consciousness. Um, sometimes, if let's say you're using the example, you want to finish your rounds quickly and do other things, that's eh, probably a little too much passion. Cases like that, we need to take time to understand and appreciate the practices. And so we don't rush through them ritualistically and just do them for the sake of doing them. So the more you understand that, then the, the less you'll have that problem. The more you understand Krishna consciousness, the more deeply you go into it, the easier it's going to be. The more you understand the philosophy behind chanting, why it's important, why sadhana is important, all these things, then the easier it's going to be to do it. All right. So if you're, you know, if you're trying to be steady in Krishna consciousness without some level of realization that comes from fairly in-depth understanding of our philosophy, it's going to be hard. Then Maya will come and just convince you otherwise. Vikash Vashwani is asking me to repeat what I said. I can't remember the context. Prabhupada, just like Krishna, blank steadiness. Maybe it was like Prabhupada stressed steadiness, just like Krishna stressed it. One thing, one of the reasons Prabhupada had to stress steadiness is because um, we as his disciples were often, um, let's just say, not as grounded as he would have liked us to be. And so things threw us off. Things could disturb, uh, disturb us that he wished wouldn't disturb us. Um, Maya would affect us in ways he would have hoped she wouldn't have. Um, we had tendencies, at least some of us, to be irresponsible in our duties, in our varnas, in our ashrams. And so he, you know, he was, we, we look at Krishna consciousness like right now, how am I doing? And Prabhupada was looking at more like, do this, and by the end of your life, you'll be Krishna conscious. But we wanted, no, I want to do this so I get it right now. So for us, that was difficult sometimes. Tendency to be irresponsible, not seeing that by being responsible throughout my life, I would mature as a person, and that would be necessary for my Krishna consciousness. We just wanted like, to do it now with the results now. So that's, that's important to see, okay, if I take the time to chant properly, if I take the time to understand Krishna consciousness more deeply, then... If I do that over a period of time, it's going to have an effect. And I may not see that effect immediately, but 50 years from now, I'll see the effect. So that was how Prabhupada was seeing it. You know, like, I got married and I thought, well, this isn't really good for my spiritual life. Uh, if I were sannyasi, that would be better. And Prabhupada's saying, no, first master the Grihasta ashram. That's the process. First you mas master that ashram, and then, then you'll be ready for sannyas. Not like you give up your responsibility. 
in the Grihasta ashram and giving up your responsibility becomes your qualification for sannyas. No, you become steady. Then you show after 25 years of being steady as a Grihasta, okay, now we can trust you to be steady as a sannyasi. That was how Prabhupada saw it. So it was like, it's like, I want to do it now. I'm 22 or 24. I want to take sannyas now. And Prabhupada's saying, no, maybe when you're 50, if you showed us that you can be steady as a grihasta and tolerate whatever you have to tolerate to do it, then when you're 50, we can talk about sannyas because you've shown. So, you know, we have to understand. Do your 16 rounds, understand what they are, get into it, appreciate it, and, and do that steadily, and over time you're going to see things will change. So steadiness is, is very powerful because, you know, we have to look at Krishna consciousness as a lifelong project, not like immediately what's happening. Like, how am I doing immediately? But how, you know, how am I doing now and then project that into the future? If I, if I do this now, what will the future look like? And, and try to understand that if you're not jumping over the 10-foot pole, but you're only jumping over the 3-foot pole. But if you do that steadily, gradually you can raise the pole. And when you're 50, you can jump over the 10-foot pole. Some can jump over it now, but that's the exception. And, and if you're not the exception, you'll get frustrated trying to be the exception when you're not. And if you're not the exception, then it's going to take you 25 years to jump over the 10-foot pole. Whereas that brahmachari... He's jumping over it now, and that becomes frustrating for you because you think, something wrong with me, I should be able to do it. But if you can't do it, you can't do it. It's just a reality, and you'll have to. it may take you 25 years of practice to be able to do it, and then we have to accept that. So I don't know if that helped, but that's something. How to know what pace of practice is appropriate not to have too much expectation? Sometimes you will need guidance from someone else who knows you. Otherwise, if you meditate on what I said, it will help you in this class. And then just just kind of observe yourself and observe your nature. And um, sometimes it, 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 takes, it takes a level of self-honesty that not a lot, a lot of us have. But sometimes the problem is, especially if you're a young devotee, it's really hard to understand what you're capable of because you're coming out of the material world and you're going into Krishna consciousness and you, you have a lot of force in it because you're getting away from material life and you're really relishing Krishna consciousness. And sometimes it, you may, you, it may seem that you're actually more Krishna consciousness than, than you are. Usually... After five to ten years in practicing Krishna consciousness, it starts to become obvious where to put that pole. In the beginning, everyone puts the pole at ten, and it just keeps crashing, but they keep trying. Because the pole at ten is, you know, that's the goal, pure devotional service. And it's not that at any point in our life we don't know that the goal is to put it at ten feet. But after a while, you start to realize, oh, it's been five years, and I can't do this 10-foot pole. You know, then you start thinking, well, what can I do? And you put it at five, and you jump over it. And you go, oh, I can do five. You put it at six, no, I crash into it. Okay, five, I can do five right now. So sometimes you understand it that way. It, it's, I think it's invaluable 
to discuss your situation with senior devotees because they are they know all this they've been through it they they've they've gone through that stage where they were trying for the 10 foot pole and it didn't work and so you know they can kind of help you but i think there's also an advantage in that most of us who were going going for the 10 foot pole were living in temples and it seemed like living in a temple you could do it and I think a lot of people who live outside know that they can't do the 10-foot pole. The, and you might say, well, why did you think you could do the 10-foot pole living in the temple? Well, you're only surrounded by devotees. You have four to five hours, six hours of sadhana every day, and you have service all day. So in that environment, it's really hard to tell where you're at because you're surrounded by this force that's just keeping you in Krishna consciousness. Whereas if you join outside and you're living alone, you don't have that so much, so it's a little easier. But um, I, would, I would just say as a caution, just question, if you, whatever level you think you're on, you may think you're on a lower level also than you, than you can be. So that's also another problem. Just question it. Just ask yourself, is this, could I be better or, uh, than I am? Or... Am I on a level that I don't know if I can be steady? Is, is this artificial for me? Is this ashram? Is this varna? Is this really artificial? And like Krishna Karshani was asking, he said, if you want to enter an ashram or you want to enter a varna, then it should be the ashram and varna that you're most naturally suited for. And then you should become educated in that varna and ashram, how to do it. And do it well. Okay, a few more questions. Overtime today. Mark, I don't know if that answers your question properly, but I would say um, if you can get association with older devotees, people like 50 and older, of course, maybe you're 50, I don't know. But um, if you're 50, probably by now you would be, you would be understanding your nature. But if you're a new devotee, and 50, then also it's hard. And try to get um, senior devotee guidance. You know, what should I do? What's my nature? What do you think is the best varna and ashram and so forth? What do I need to know about those ashrams like that? Uh, when in a situation when a devotee, after taking initiation, realized they took vows that are too difficult for him or her to follow, he or her just realized it was not real, and thought that was higher than really is. Yeah, well, it's 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 not ideal, but it's um, it's a reality that happens, and we have to make some adjustment. So, if that's the situation, you make an adjustment. Don't give up Krishna consciousness. Just adjust, and then um, work your way through that adjustment to eventually, at some point. You know, do something that could eventually bring you as close as possible to following your vows. Does that mean we follow other people by taking initiation but at the same time not able to keep the vow? They're worried to approach devotees thinking people will make fun of them so competent. I'm not sure what you're saying. Didn't understand. We follow other people by taking initiation at the same time. 
Well, don't take initiation if you can't keep a vow. Um, I can address the second one. I'm not sure, but you mentioned they're worried to approach devotees thinking people will make fun of them. That's, com that's unfortunate. Approach someone that will be confidential and um, will not judge you and then open up to that person. I don't know if that's what you're asking, but that's the answer. If that's not the answer you're looking for, ask again. Krishnangi says, I love our japa sessions. I'm waiting for them so much. Great. This time together is really helping me. So we have japa sessions every day at 11 o'clock, Eastern Standard Time. And she's talking about those japa sessions. Yeah, it's nice because we get to, most of us are alone. She's alone where she's living. So she likes that. Brian says, nurse didn't show up today. Got to go. Mason up and started feeding. Thank you so much. Okay. Sounds like, Brian, you're a mother. But thanks for attending. Jessica says, I've noticed that some devotees who live in or near the temples don't channel 16 rounds, but they are the ones who perform the most practical service. Cooking and cleaning, they keep it for years. They even seem to love serving the deities and forgetting their own needs that causes me a lot of admiration. Yeah, so I think, I think like the work of Satyanandan Swami and Burijan Prabhu in helping people with their Um, helping people with their japa is really invaluable. And the books they've written and my japa affirmations. And I think this is really important because the point you're making is it's a reality that a lot of devotees have not got to this point where they really like chanting japa, where they really relish it. It's, it's, it's a chore for them, like almost like a ritual. And so with the help and guidance of senior devotees who have gone deeper into the Holy Name. Not just those three. There's so many devotees who are teaching about the Holy Name. Um, it can be really, really helpful for us. So it's important. Uh, this particular activity for many is, is not as relishable as it can be and it should be. So it's just, it's just a reality. And yes, you have admiration. They're steady. But... Um, this is something that needs to be worked on, for sure, for all of us. Um, Christe, you said, is there any literature you would recommend regarding this? Does this mean how to be a better person, a better husband, better wife? Um, you, there, there are so many good books on that. The Seven Principles to Make Marriage Work. That's the course my wife teaches. It's also the name of a book. Something like that. That's a very good book. And in terms of personal issues, it depends what the issue is, but there are solutions for all problems. Some of them are directly in Krishna consciousness. Some of them may require some outside sources. Reshma says, um, if you are steady in your Grihasta Ashram, be steady in sannyas. How lovely. Oh, well, it was Prabhupada said it, not me. 
And he said it to me. <laughs> That's why I know. Um, Prabhupada's point was responsibility. Like, if you're irresponsible as a grihasta, how can I give you sannyas? How can I be sure that you'll be responsible as a sannyasi if you're giving up your responsibility as a grihasta? You have to prove yourself. Vikash mm. Vashwani, four rounds, good ones. It's a connection issue. Yeah. So, you know, I don't like to say four good rounds are better than 16 bad rounds because it sounds like I'm making a concession and all everybody, you know, everyone who listens to my classes only chants four rounds. They chant four good rounds instead of 16 bad rounds. Well, actually, that would be better. But Prabhupada wanted us to chant 16 good rounds, so that's the goal. So we have to remember that also. Yeah, we want KC to be a long a long life, a lifelong process. So I think that's a good point. Um, oh, Brian's with me. Oh, oh, okay. Brian's listening, but now he has to go. Oh, all right. Everyone needs a good husband like that. So, yeah, I think this is a good point. If you look at Krishna consciousness as a lifelong practice and think, how am I going to do it so that I can be successful lifelong? then I think a lot of what I'm saying will become more clear. So thanks for sharing that, Marco, or maybe clarifying what I was saying that that could put it more succinctly, you know, as a lifelong practice. How what what, what I need to do so that I can be steady throughout my life and success will be in. When you were speaking about your shift from business to full time preaching, and any books on it, um it's more it is basically what we would call um, self-development. You know, any books on self-development will always teach you that if you don't intentionally work towards something, then by your conditioning, you just end up in a situation or by circumstance. So that's the basis basis of it. And any kind of self-development teaching, that's the basis of it, that you have to Decide what you want to do. You have to visualize it. You have to feel it. You have to be inspired to do it, of course. You shouldn't decide to do something that doesn't inspire you. And you have to have confidence that you can do it, and then you have to have a practical plan how you do it, which could m mean reading books on how to do, achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. But any book on self-development will help you um, just understand. But what I just explained is a basic principle and probably... There are lots of classes in which I explain that. But, you know, it, it also hinges on having the belief that you can do it. And I think another thing that I thought was that I was looking at what I was doing and I knew, well, this is not really what I should be doing. Not, not Varna-wise or not because of my service to Prabhupada. It's not the best way I could serve him. So, you know, I thought about the ramifications of of both choices and the choice to be more brahmanical and figure out how I could do that full time uh, it was just it was perfect it just made all the sense in the world to me based on my nature and the other choice seemed to be a dead end because I knew anyway I couldn't do it my whole life because I had no energy to do it people who like business they can do it their whole life they can do it for lifetimes so I think I think um, if you come, 
if you come to this point where you realize, I could do this for lifetimes, then I would just suggest to you that do whatever you have to do to build the faith and confidence that you can actually make that shift, whether it's reading books on making a shift or just general self-development, altering your beliefs, whatever it is. And then learning practically how to do such things. You know, it's like, I love to teach. All right, well, start practicing it or, you know, take a teacher training course or, you know, just start doing it. Um, I did a video the other day, or it came out the other day, and I was saying how when you want to make a shift, really, once you're clear on what it is, aside from everything else I said, you begin by just working on something, right? So let's say, Chris Day, you want to become, uh, what do you want to become? You want to become, okay, well, I don't know what you want to become. You probably don't, you may not know what you want to become. So, but let's say you want to become a teacher, right? So then, what could you do today, one little thing to bring you closer to the goal? What could you do tomorrow, the next day? So you just do something each day. Okay, I'm going to today investigate where, you know, this course the devotees teach, teacher training, where can I take that online, you know? Oh, tomorrow I'm going to sign up. You know, next day I'm going to begin the course. I'm doing something to get closer to the goal. So any, anytime you decide what your goal is, the next question to ask yourself is, what am I doing today that's getting me closer to that goal? Or you might decide, I want to teach so on my Facebook. I'm just going to turn it on and teach. And probably nobody is going to watch or I'll have one student. But I need to learn, and this is how I'll learn. Every day I'm going to give a class for 10 minutes on Facebook. And I'll tell my friends if you want. And I'm going to study something, and you can give me feedback. You know, you're doing something. And once you start doing something, you'll see it moves you towards your goal. If your job is bad, what can I do today to improve? What can I do tomorrow? I do something like that. So I think that's important. Japa session? No. I, um, I will join the Japa session every day at 11 Eastern Standard Time. I think Anuradha is going to start at Anuradha. We'll start the Japa session earlier at 10, correct? For those who want to join. I actually may join earlier today because I have to make up a little bit for yesterday. Quality over quantity in Japa is always a concern, but it is not as a sadhaka stage. We need to focus more in fixed quantity. No, both. It's not one or the other. <laughs> don't, don't make the distinction. You know, 16 bad rounds is, you know, doesn't get you back to Godhead. But if you've, you know, it's great that you're chanting 16, you've made that vow, but it doesn't get you back to God. Actually, Anuradha, I can't join at 10. I have to do something and send it out this morning before 11. Oh, okay, so we'll end class here. Thank you all for attending. I hope that helped you. I hope, hope you're not more confused than when I started. Sometimes, you know, an hour, an hour and a half is not enough to, like, get very practical and get you you know, to practically start working on what we've said. So all I can suggest is if anything made sense in this class, try to put it, into, uh, try to apply it and do something practical. Because in a workshop, that's what I would do. I would say, okay, let's take this practically, you know, Wh where, you know, the exercise, I would, I would say, 
where is your where what where does your pole go where do you want to put your pole and what does that look like according to varna ashram and the level of sadhana and so forth where where does your pole go so that would be the exercise from this course okay oh my COVID is exploding in Texas. Oh, my God. Hare Krishna. Um, um, so as far as the Japa class, we were discussing about doing it earlier, but I can only do it for an hour a day, and I wanted to do it an hour earlier. But it doesn't work for Hawaii, because in Hawaii, that's 5 a.m., and all the people in the congregation may not be up. So then we thought, well, if anybody wants, we can start at 10 but I would come at 11, most likely. So that's, so then, whether you want to start at 10 or not, if, if Anuradha, you have to chant anyway and you just want to open it up, then everyone can come at 10, which is what I thought we were going to do, but I wasn't going to come at 10 generally because I kind of have to do something. Are you going to open up at 10, Anuradha? Anuradha. I have to send something. See, the problem is I have to send something to England. And if I wait till after the job session to work on it, and then I finish it, it's like the end of the day. And it's not good. And if I finish it now, it's better. So, yeah, I, I will come at 11. Hare Krishna. Okay. So, Anuradha will... T um, what I understood, Anuradha, was that Gormani asked you if you will open it up earlier and you said yes, you would. So if that's true, then you can all join if you want. You can all join at 10. I will come at 11. Um, uh, yeah. How can you join the japa? You can sneak out for a tea break. <laughs> and then you can join. There's also recordings of it for if you want, you can then take the recording of it. It's put up on my Facebook page and you can chant with the recording. Um, so Anuradha will start. And if I finish what I have to do quickly, then I can come. But I don't know. It's going to take a little while. Okay. Maybe it won't take as long as I think. I, I will come earlier, Anuradha, if I can. And then at 11 o'clock, we'll do a guided meditation. Okay? So, Anuradha, you want to give the address, for those who don't know? Anuradha will start in 13 minutes, and then I will work on something, and when I finish, I will come. Um, there's also ads on Facebook, but um, I'll just wait for Anuradha to put in the... Uh, the Zoom address. And then we will end class. Krishna, Krishna, Hari, Hari. The Zoom address is, I can't find it. It's my address. And I don't have it written down. And I could kind of look. See if I have an ad, if I can get it before she does. Here it is. Okay, I'm going to write it down.
702-043-3455. There it is. And guess what the password is? You'll never guess what the password is. Um, in 108 years, you'll never guess what the password is. What do you think the password is? The password is 108. Who would have ever guessed? Okay, so do you want to join? Now you have two. She beat me to it. Okay, so we'll end class. Hare Krishna to everyone. Sri the Prabhupada Ki Jai. Go Premanandi Hari Hari Bo. Hari Hari.